Well, well, well. Uh, thanks. If you came in late, uh, Chandra and the announcements shared was very open and honest about uh, the COVID is, of course, slowing down the process. You probably could guess that. And they said that uh, Gene will hang with us until we have a pastor, and there was an applause. So you threw a, another log on the out-of-control ego fire. That was smart. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's pleasing to know that you're enjoying the teaching. I'm enjoying teaching you. Uh, I'm having a, a great time. This is a great church. I, just for a second, let's just, let's just evaluate a couple of things, frankly and honestly. Because of COVID, I, your, your board is working as hard as they can. The district superintendent, Dave Bartley, is on it. He really is. But because of COVID, of course, everything's being slowed down. The process changes. All the rules have changed. Not only in your life, not only in the church, people are watching online, but a process of getting a pastor, that, that's, been, that's been severely affected. So you're, you're in the middle of, of really a, a longer interim than, than we probably assumed. Your worship leader has accepted a call somewhere else. COVID is affecting our, our entire lives. And as you think about it, as a church, we, haven't taken a, we really haven't taken a step backwards. You've already hung in there. Uh, yes, Chandra and, and the team have stepped up, stepped up, stepped up, period. They have. But equally true, you do not have a lead pastor. And that does affect things. And as you're just thinking out loud, just frankly, this is a great church. You all have hung in here. Uh, whoever, I think the Lord knows who's going to be here. I think he's, he's directing some things. He might even, be, might even be directing the learning we're doing through the interim. I, 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 I don't want to presume, but I, I think whoever is finally here, they have a privilege to pastor this church. This is not a bad place at all to be. I tell you that right now. So that, that's some, just, some, just some random thoughts because I got the microphone. You can't stop me. <laughs> I live so serious, don't I? I mean, you're, you're waiting. What's he going to say next? ADD, ADD, ADD. One nation under God, we conclude the series today. We live, and we've been looking at the divide in our nation, how it affects us, uh, left and the right, liberals, conservatives, all declaring that they will provide the American dream, Democrats and Republicans promising everything to get your vote, and that vote will make your life better than the American dream. The American dream is now the religion of America. Between right and left, there is no middle ground, constantly screaming talking points back and forth. You either love the Obama eight years or you hate the Obama eight years. You either love the last four years of Trump or hate the last four years of Trump. The divide's only getting larger. And we're racing toward an election that's going to be an incredible divide. In the middle of this, of course, COVID-19, rioting in the streets. There's anger. There's underlying frustration. And in all this junk, we bring the gospel. It's a tricky time to bring the gospel. And unless we're more than naive, we have to realize Satan's going to use this. Why would he? If you were the enemy, you would. He's looking for ways to divide churches, divide relationships. He looks for any method because he functions in division. He's always had to divide and conquer. And our biggest issue seems to be the misunderstanding of Jesus versus the American culture. The American dream is about me. Jesus says, no, it's about sacrifice. It's about taking up your cross. So we're going to conclude the series today. I want to conclude by saying, therefore, because of all that stuff we've been talking about, let's be sure who we are, because we unite around that, despite what's happening out in our country. So who we are, we've got to go back to square one. I mean, creation. Why did God form us in the first place? 
He didn't need us. An all-sufficient God of the universe has no unmet need. So why do meet? Why create us? Because we're a mess. Cry out loud, you are. I don't know me. So an all-sufficient God without any need within Himself. He never dawned on you. Why? Why would He bother creating us? And the last thing I, I, I want to do is presume that I understand the motive of God. But He kind of told us. And it's very different from the American dream. There seems to be a twofold purpose from the very beginning of our history, a twofold purpose for our creation. In this God human relationship, we're created to enjoy His blessings and His grace, which leads to us living out kingdom. We're always back there, aren't we? We're enjoying His blessings and His grace. And He makes clear because of that, He created us in His image. Take a look all the way back, Genesis 1. 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image and likeness. Let them rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the tame animals, over all the earth, over all the smalling, small crawling animals of the earth. So God created human beings in his image. In his image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. He said it three or four times there, so it's kind of rammed at us. In his image. So we alone have this capacity for an intimate relationship with God. Your dog, your cat, don't. Fish in the sea, don't. We alone in his image have this unique capacity for a relationship. And the Bible uses this relationship. The first time the word, the word of God, the first time the Bible talks about our relationship with God, the first word that's used is blessing. God blessed the human race. Not because of our merit, There's no inherent stuff about us. Purely out of his grace. It's a blessing and grace. We were created to enjoy his blessing and his grace. And as we enjoy that, it motivates us to live kingdom, which is always where we go back to sooner or later. That's not the end of the story. Because on the other hand, God immediately followed his blessings with a command. And by the way, that's the way it happens all through your life. Following a blessing, look for a command. So we have this blessing, and so now we have a command. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said, have many children grow in number. So we're in his image that we might multiply throughout the world, extending his blessings, grace, and kingdom. We're to extend his glory. Remember kingdom, living my life that God received glory. My decisions, who I am as a husband, how you are as a wife, the women, how how you raise your kids, how you are at work. Everything's a symptom of that one thing in my spiritual walk. God receives glory. Simple enough. We live in his grace. We enjoy his blessings. We extend his glory. So if that's really the dominant theme of my life, if that's really what I'm about, therefore it's not really about being a Democrat or Republican. It's not Trump or Biden or the American dream. It's a life that that really is a higher level than what I'm bombarded with all the time. And when this is what we're about, it unites us despite divides in the country. His grace, his glory, is seen in all the stages of biblical history. Again, back in Genesis. Genesis 12. God forms his people and he says to Abraham, I will make you a a great nation and I will bless you. Command and a blessing. Here it is. Genesis 12, 3. I want you to see it. I will bless those who bless you, and I will place a curse on those who harm you. All the people of the earth will be blessed by you. Abraham is to enjoy God's grace, 
his blessing and show his glory to all the people. Same pattern. The Exodus, there Moses, who looks like Charlton Heston, is leading the people out of, out of Egypt. The nation's coming. They're at the Red Sea, parts the Red Seas. And then God has the Red Seas collapse on the Egyptian army, chasing them, drowning them. You ever notice what God says about this? Exodus 14, 4. His motive. I will defeat the king and his army. I will bring honor to me and the Egyptians will know that I am Lord. Same pattern. Grace and blessings to his nation. His grace and blessings, I will defeat your enemy. I will crush the Egyptian army. His glory, I receive glory because I defeat the enemy. Grace and glory leading to us living our kingdom. Almost all scripture, those events can be tied down to we're created to receive his grace, enjoy his blessings, and live our kingdom. He even talks about it when Israel sinned against him. And he gave the reason for what he did. Ezekiel 36, 22 and 23. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for my sake of my holy name. I'm not doing it for you, I'm doing it for me. You have profaned my name among the nations of which you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord. I will show myself holy through you before their eyes. What a statement. He's saying, I'm going to move among you, but it's not for your sake. I'm not doing this for your sake. It's me showing my glory. It always goes back to that, doesn't it? I'm doing this to show my holiness. I'm doing this to show my name. It's not about you. It's about me. God comes to us and says, it's not about you. Which is, of course, the opposite of the American dream. Because the American dream is about me. And so what happens in the American dream, we create a Jesus about me. And the Christian message gets a little bit twisted. We take a truth and build on it where it shouldn't go. The truth. God loves me and sent his son to die for me. True. Glorious. Praise God. No one's going to challenge that. God sent his son. He loves me and he died for me. But did you hear it? It's about me. Jesus is about me. Christianity is about me. The gospel and the church is about me. Therefore, when I try to figure what church I'm going to be a part of, my first thought is, what's the program here? For me. What will I get out of this? Not how I could possibly function, how this church and I could be used together to advance the kingdom. It's about me. No wonder Christians in the American age are so fragile. Some are always hurt. They live their whole life as a victim. And remember, it's impossible to be a victim until you find a villain. It's about me. And Jesus is not that different from Santa Claus in a lot of ways. What will you provide for me next? Bring it on. Because it's about me. That's just not completely biblical. The message is not, God loves me, period. The message is, God loves me. That I might know him Enjoy his blessings and his, his grace and live out kingdom. That's the whole sentence. 
He loves me that I might know him, live out his blessings, enjoy his grace, and live out kingdom. So now, if I'm a Republican or a Democrat, that's not the biggest issue in my life. If, I, if my thoughts and, and personal philosophy tends to lead more towards conservative or more towards liberal, that may not be the biggest issue in my life. Now, time out here. I'm not naive. I know there are critical debates in our country that are vital to you and me. We live in a unique moment in national history right now. I, I'm not ignoring that fact. But that may not be the debate for here. Satan would love us to get sucked into controversies rather than focus on kingdom. This place could almost become a place of obligation rather than privilege. It's hard for us to grasp, but we're not the center of the universe. God is. You were created to be better than good. Remember last week, I can be good without Jesus. I, I can be a good husband. I can be a good man. I, 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 I can be a good citizen. I can do all that stuff. I can be a good parent without Jesus. We're created for something deeper than a nice job and a nice home. We're created for more than who we vote for. Jesus calls us to a higher plane, and we should not settle for anything less. Okay, you've made the point. All right, so let's go deeper. No one wants to admit this, but every single one of us has blind spots. Spots that we don't recognize about ourselves that others do. We don't want to admit they exist, but sometimes other people can see them. Maybe, maybe you have the blind spot of anger, and people are always a little nervous because you, you can go from zero to 60 real fast. You don't realize it's a blind spot, but it's a blind spot. Maybe you have a, have, have a, have a blind spot of inappropriate jealousy. Whatever. We all, we all tend to have blind spots that other people can sometimes recognize faster than we can. It's just human beings. On a bigger scale, American history, the church can have blind spots where the culture created the thinking of the church, which was radically wrong. The, the easiest example is slavery. Christians who believed in the gospel rationalized enslaving other human beings. Churchgoers with good intentions, they sang the hymns on Sunday. They read the Bible, then they went home to their slaves. It's humiliating. It's frighteningly clear. Good intentions, regular worship, even studying the Bible cannot prevent a blindness within us. Slavery found its way in the American culture in the 1600s, 1700s, early 1800s, and it found its way in the church. Now, yeah, that's a, that's a radical example to make the point. Slavery is not the issue today. So is there a spiritual blindness today? It goes back to what we've been talking about the entire series. Me. The culture of me finds its way in the church. And as Christians... We celebrate wonderful truths because usually blindness begins with a truth and goes where it shouldn't. The wonderful truth, all men are created equal. Declaration of Independence. Who's going to argue that? I think that's grounded in a biblical principle. Every single person is formed in the image of God. Therefore, you have intrinsic worth. You are valuable. You're formed in the image of God. All powerful, all true. Every single person is valued. Every single person is valuable. And we celebrate this. What's the problem? We take a truth that is non-negotiable and we take it somewhere else. This equality of people, we're all equal, we're all valuable, 
ends up becoming, therefore, all of our ideas should be equal. All of our ideas should be equally powerful. Just as every person is valued, every idea should be valued. And this begins to be applied to faith. So people of different religions, all views are fundamentally equal. See, faith is no longer a matter of truth, but now it's a matter of taste. Faith stops being a matter of truth. It becomes a matter of taste. This issue of God and us becomes opinion. And to dare say that your faith is a lie? Oh, that's not politically correct. You're not allowed to do that. I think Satan functions in political correctness. Wait a second there, Jane. Before you, before you get any deeper here, before you get any more trouble, consider like Buddhism. According to global religion statistics, the following nations practice Buddhism. China, including Hong Kong, Taiwan, North Korea, South Korea, Japan, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Miramar, Singapore, where 70% are in Buddhism, Nepal, mixed with Hinduism, and India. More than a billion people are following Buddhism. Are you, do you have the, the courage to say that more than a billion people are wrong? Who do you think you are? And what about Muslims? According to the same source, 21.1% of the global population is now Muslim. That would account for 6.7 billion followers. Gene, are you suggesting 6.7 billion people, every one of them, is wrong? Who do you think you are? In that rational, we run into a problem. How many people does it take to believe a lie to make it become true? If a lie is believed by a million people, do we have to say it's true? If a lie is believed by a billion people, we say, well, it must be true. Where's the tipping point? Where's the line where a lie becomes truth? I'm, a, I'm not a historian, but I read a lot about Germany in, in, in the World War II. I'm fascinated by that period, particularly the time prior to World War II. Consider Germany in the 1930s. The biggest problem after World War I, the armistice that Germany had to sign brutalized Germany. It crippled them. And the culture began to buy in, we need a villain. And the culture began to buy in that the Jews were the dominant source of the problem. Newspapers carried cartoon caricatures of, of Jewish businessmen that looked like rats. They had, they had jackets, even a tail in the back and long nose. They, they were characterized as, as, as rats. School children were taught lessons about hating Jews. Not only education, but the media was shaping the culture we're, we're living these days. Songs were created about, about the menace that the Jews were. All the media, all the education pressed one theme and people bought in. The reason our economy is so damaged, frankly, is because of the Jews. Now, not every German joined the Nazi party because they believed. Many joined the Nazi party because they had little choice. Uh, they, they, would, they could be beaten. They wouldn't have employment. They would join for their own safety and da-da-da-da-da. But the great majority did buy into the lie. The reason that we're in such a mess is the Jews. In fact, they're vermin. They should be exterminated. In 1935, the German census, there were 65 million people in German proper. It's projected that upwards of 10 million people joined the Nazi party but did not believe the lie. So, 
65 million, 10 million didn't buy in. That leads us to the belief 55 million people in the 1930s believed Jews were the problem. The brilliant mind, sick mind, but brilliant mind of Joseph Goebbels, who was a propaganda minister, has a great quote. Never forget this quote. If you tell a lie often enough with enough passion, it will be true. If you tell a lie often enough with enough passion, it will be true. Joseph Goebbels. In addition to Germany proper, there was the Nazi global. In America, it was called the American Bund. In South America, it was huge. And these people didn't join the Nazi party because of worried about employment. They had to go against the tide to join the Nazi party. So in addition to the 55 million that, that bought in that the Jews were vermin, globally you have to add more. It's believed that somewhere between 80 and 90 million people believed the lie. Jews were subhuman. They were vermin to be, excu- to be extinguished. If 90 million people believe it, is it true? What a terrible lie out of hell. 90 million people believed it. It was still a lie. If a billion people would have believed it, it's still a lie. So the idea that there are so many people that believe these other faiths, how can they all be wrong? I'm sorry, they are. It doesn't change the fact that outside of Jesus, there is nothing. Jesus is God in the flesh. He calls us to repentance. He calls us to live kingdom. He calls us to understand his grace. He calls us to live in his blessings. And Jesus is the only means by which we can be saved, period. Everything else is wrong. The fact that billions buy into a lie doesn't change the fact. And Satan is at war only with Christ. He doesn't need to be at war with anybody else. And the blind spot in modern Christianity, we're so politically correct, we're afraid to call out that truth. And we're so busy with secondary things that we forget what's primary. Kingdom. Relationship. But why are we such a mess? Well, it's easy. The world belongs to Satan. It's not Christ's. Oh, that's radical. Well, it is. When Jesus was tempted, remember the second temptation? Satan came to him and said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't correct him because Satan has all the kingdoms of the world. That's why if you, if you ignore Christ, you can float downstream pretty, pretty easily. It, when you bring Christ in and live kingdom, you're kind of going against the stream because the world belongs to Satan who crafts cultures to derail the church. Who crafts cultures to derail the church and you. Who crafts religions to derail the, the truth and you? Kingdom, relationship. The American dream has created one more blind spot. Work hard. Achieve. Again, blind spots begin with truth. Well, yeah. Work hard, achieve. There's, there's that great line, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Work hard, achieve. In Jesus' day, Jesus talked to those who worked really hard. They were no more devout than the teachers of the law. They not only taught the law, they knew the law. Get ready. They memorized it. I could bring up one of those old-time guys and ask him to recite the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible. They could stand here and memorize and recite it. I know. Yikes. But they didn't live out kingdom, but they knew the law. 
Jesus' words to them are, are kind of telling, aren't they? John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. I want you to see it. You carefully study the scriptures because you think they give eternal life. They do, in fact, tell you about me. But you refuse to come to me with your life. They knew the Bible. They didn't come to Christ. I think we have to understand what the Bible really is and what scripture really is. I think the best way to understand it, it's an x-ray. X-rays are huge importance. An x-ray can show, if you've got a problem, an x-ray can show you you need help. An x-ray can show you where you need to develop. An x-ray might even confirm your health. But if there's a problem, the x-ray should send you to a specialist. The x-ray don't heal you. Merely knowing scripture doesn't heal you. It should lead you to the specialist. It should lead you to Christ. And sometimes the x-ray is good news. Sometimes you read the Bible and you're being blessed by a guy's coming along saying, what you're reading is exactly what you're doing. I want to bless you. I, I want to affirm you. Sometimes scripture is con confrontive. Sometimes it's very confirming. It's an x-ray. But the x-ray don't heal you. Scripture alone doesn't heal you. You can achieve you can work, study, volunteer, sacrifice financially. You can feel good about yourself because the American dream says work and achieve. The Father doesn't give us a checklist. He calls us to Christ. He says, repent, be whole. Don't be a hero. Don't be an achiever. Be a follower. And as you follow, you will become more and more of involved and financially as you grow in all of those other things. That's why Jesus kind of made it clear. Seek first the kingdom. Seek that first. My glory. We'll go from there. Everything else will be added from there. In the late 1940s, the United States government commissioned William Francis Gibbs to work with the United States lines to construct an $80 million troop ship for the Navy. Now, $80 million in the 1940s, we're talking about a couple billion dollars. This is an unbelievable super ship designed to be way ahead of its time. The purpose, the military had bankrolled this thing, was it could possibly move 15,000 troops at a time speedily to any part of the world at war. In 1952, it took that long for the final completion of what they called the SS United States. The ship statistically could travel 33 knots, 52 miles an hour. This gigantic ship could fly on the water. She could steam for 10,000 miles without needing a fuel stop. So far ahead of her time. Could get anywhere in the world literally within 10 days with 15,000 troops. She was the marvel of her day. The United States, SS United States, was the fastest, most mobile troop ship in the world designed for war situations. The problem she never carried one troop, not one soldier. She was put on standby in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but since she was never used, she was sold. The SS United States was refit as a luxury liner. She was beautiful. I have a picture. Take a look at the SS United States. It's gorgeous. As a luxury liner, she did not carry 15,000 troops, but about 2,000 passengers in luxury. She had four dining rooms, Two theaters, multiple bars, heated pool back then, cutting edge, 19 elevators, and in fact, she was the world's first completely air-conditioned ship. Instead of a vessel designed for battle, she became a kind of a symbol of indulgence reserved for the very wealthy. A battleship is very different from a cruise ship. The soldiers' faces look very different going into battle than an old guy sitting by a pool with a pina colada. The pace is different. 
The attitude is different. Troop ships are in a hurry. Luxury liners go slow so you can enjoy the journey. The unique history of the SS United States kind of tells me about us. The church. The church was designed for battle. The church was designed for battle. To mobilize people for a mission. To be clear what we're doing. To be unified around a mission. To be absolutely positive, supporting one another, rescuing one another when we're hurting. Rallying around one another, around kingdom. We were designed specifically for battle. And somehow we ended up being a cruise ship. To rest wonderfully in a world who is opposed to the kingdom. So why are we surprised churches are so fragile? There is a great power behind us. The greatest power the world has ever known. The power of Christ, which transforms lives, transforms the world, transforms the church. And I think he is starving for churches to be battleships, not cruise liners. Because we were designed for one thing and somehow we're getting used for something else. If we could separate ourselves from the blind spots of the culture that's driven by Satan and be a battleship and live kingdom, he blesses. Let's stand together, please. Father, we've been talking about a series that has a political feel to it, but it's really about us and who we are in a divided nation. We can't help anybody if we don't know who we are. And Father, I praise you for your presence and power and the privilege to teach. I praise you and thank you. I pray your anointing on this battleship as they're going through maybe the most important days in their history. Trying to serve in a nation that's coming apart while we remain committed and united at the same time in a search for who will captain this battleship. We pray for your discernment and wisdom in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Something that I, I like to do, it's, it's a habit I've, I, I think people should know is coming up. With the series I've talked to, I said next week we're going to continue the series. Now that it's done, next week uh, Tammy and I are, are going to be out of town. And I think it's working out good. Periodically, I think your district superintendent should be able to be at a church that's in a transition. So uh, Dr. Dave Bartley will be speaking next Sunday. Uh, the following Sunday, August, frightening, August, August 2nd, uh, Christ calls us his bride. Does that wig you out? You girls love it, but I, I'm not a really attractive bride. I'm sorry. Guys, does that kind of mess with you when you're, you're, you're the bride? What on earth is he talking about calling the church his bride? It is, in fact, he's laying out his second coming in the end of the world. Gene, you're going to connect bride to the end of the world? We'll connect all those dots August 2nd. Let's worship one more time.